So, I'm going to respond to some questions this evening. First of all, some points in the suttas. So, I've brought these discourses along and uh, slightly esoteric, but why not? So, the first query is about rebirth or further birth because rebirth is one way of talking this actually means there's nothing getting reborn it's just continuing so jati, birth upajati, further birth ponobhavika, further becoming so it's not you're going back things are just moving along you drop a body here and there So the Krishna says in, in their limited experience, the Theravada teachers talk about rebirth as instantaneous, immediately the moment after one dies. Tibetans, who seem to have a lot more going for them in this respect, talk about bardo intermediate states. Is it just useless speculation to consider what happens after death? Uh, so reflections on dissolution of the aggregates, elements, the sense spheres, all that we cling to, me, mind, and so forth. Um, so just having this idea that this all kind of dissolves, or um, or some of it dissolves and some of it doesn't, you know, in between lives, um, they find um, helps to get perspective on on this life and I think that that's probably the most useful piece of it because most of us really don't have any direct experience we can relate to about what happens after death mm-hmm. um, but it's one of the subjects for f- frequent recollection and as a practice maranusati maranusati mindfulness or Recollection of death, marana, marana, nusati, um, recollection of death. And the aim is to keep one's life tidy. Um, So, you know, if everything I have is going to leave me, there's not a lot of point getting lots of stuff. And um, what stays with me is the... uh, you know, the regrets or the compulsive habits or the skills and virtues that I've cultivated in this life. And so this is why we are encouraged to recollect it every day that we are bound to death or something's bound to death and to practice uh, just, uh, you know, okay, so what goes? And then we think, okay, first of all, what goes is um, the ability to move maybe, move around or sense fear would start to get difficult painful or fade out Uh, obviously contact speech uh, association with people one's possessions you can't have them ownership of all that clarity maybe gets impaired Um, the thinking stops um, fades out can't form words and so uh, 
then what are we left with? Well, what's happening in the heart? Mm. And so this is uh, often the time of death is when you really you, you, you kind of you invite the teacher or the monk round to talk. So you're just listening in, encouraging what to let go of and what to relinquish and what to look for, which is pretty much um, what is happens in these bardo teachings, just instructions, what to keep aiming for and what to sense. And if you have some um, access to somatic practice and these practices, then, uh, you know, the, the external form crumbles, fades out, then you really have more the internal qualities of the body, somatic presence, and how, how that's bonded to chitta. And then as that energy, body energy fades, then chitta then has to move on on its own trajectory. And the trajectory is uh, accordance with the basic themes one has cultivated and uh, or become uh, obsessed with uh, in one's life. So we practice this, perhaps even going to rest at night. Just imagine that tonight is the last night and then what do you have to leave behind? Say thank you, gratitude, uh, forgive, let go, gratitude, prepare the heart. And a uh, sense of what's been valuable and precious in this life. To bring this to mind and linger on it long and breathe it breathe with it so it really gets established because if these jitter inclinations are properly printed onto the somatic presence that kind of that acts as the we might say the launching pad for where the jitter's gonna gonna go thinking's not really gonna do much good that goes before the rest of it goes Now, as to whether there's an instantaneous further birth or not, um, there's not a lot said about this, but there are these interesting kind of notes in the suttas. And so this is from the Numerical Discourses, Book of the Sevens, Sutta 55. So the Buddha's liking it to a practitioner. Practicing thus with this theme in mind. It might not be, it might not be mine, it will not be, it will not be mine. I am abandoning what exists and what has come to be. I am abandoning what exists and what has come to me. One obtains equanimity, not attached to existence, not attached to origination, what rises up. Seized with correct wisdom, there is a higher state that is peaceful, yet does not totally realize that state is not totally abandoned. The underlying tendency, anutsaya, anutsaya is the word, which I'll come back to later, the underlying tendency to lust for existence, not totally abandoned ignorance, with the utter destruction of the five lower fetters, becomes an obtainer of nibbana in the interval. <laughs> so this little phrase, in the interval, kind of slips in there. For example, when an iron bowl has been heated all day and is struck, a chip might fly off, rise up, and be extinguished. I think it's a spark, 
perhaps. So it's kind of like maybe it's been heated and then banged and then maybe a little shard of hot iron flies off and then it's extinguished. Um, so when someone is practicing thus, with the destruction of the five lower fetters, he becomes an attainer of Nibbana in the interview. So the image is one of this, you know, you've got an iron bowl, which, okay, this is, you could say, the aggregates, you know, the, the sense of the being. And then it's been heated up and bang. And then, then this kind of chitta flies off. <laughs> and before it hits the ground, it goes out. So in other words, it doesn't land again and start another thing. You see what I mean? So it kind of flies off, and it, rather than going on to another thing, it just dissolves in thin air. He uses this quite a few times, this image. It's extinguished before it, before it lands on the ground. It becomes an attain of Nibbana in the interval. So this is said to be the interval between one birth and another birth. And there's a few places where this same refrain is used, obtain of Nibbani in the interval. And um, so it's not really explained, but it's a very clear image, which seems to indicate that there is the possibility of an intermediary um, something (laughs) between one birth and another. And, um, yeah, I think that's what that particular is as far as it goes in the Pali canon. I think the much of Theravada rests upon, is highly permeated with the Abhidharma understanding and classification of mind. And so the Abhidharma classifications, you've always got one moment immediately after another. You can't have a chitta without it being in something. So their presentation, that presentation of chitta, is always associated with some chetasaka, some, some, some thing there. So it can't just fly off. <laughs> you know, you don't have an independent chitta. Mm-hmm. So whether you'd even call this jitta or not is another speculation because, um, you know, does the jitta realize Nibbana or does the jitta go out? I think is more the sutta explanation. The jitta has this quality of energy and uh, it's got a formative tendency and for Nibbana that, that dissolves and it's, there's released. Mm. So you see the phrase, the jitta is released but it's even released to the extent to which it's released from anything you could describe it as being. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. And um, just to sort of um, confuse the matter even further or cause even more useless speculation to occur, we... Uh, mm, some of the forest teachers, they talk about deathless jitta. Uh, some jitta beyond the aggregates, a jitta, deathless jitta, which uh, is quite controversial. And um, there it is. So find out when you get there, I reckon.
But certainly Maranusati is, is a good practice. It's not supposed to make you miserable, but to give you a sense of prioritizing. You know, how much is one hanging on to memories, perceptions of oneself and others? That's got to go. Uh, aims and projections for the future, that's got to go. <laughs> you know, body, of course, that's going to go. Uh, belongings, that's going to go. Uh, maybe even the ability to, to, at certain moments, even know what you are, that, that can go. Mm. But what remains is those tendencies in the citta. And uh, you know, this phrase, anutsaya, latent tendencies. Mm. These are tendencies towards, need to write them down. Sense, desire, aversion, views, doubt, conceit. Conceit means um, concepts, really, like conceiving things or conceiving yourself to be something that's distinct from other people, other beings. And bhava and avijja, ignorance. So one, one question asked about Kilesa and, and um, or defilements and asava, the distinction. And so there's also this other term, so kilesa, asava, and anutsaya. Kilesa are much more behavioral, so more surface experiences of you know, greed, hatred, delusion, conceit, speculative views, doubt, sluggishness, restlessness. Shamelessness, lack of respect and conscience for other people, other beings. So these are sort of surface kilesas. And these other ones, also are much more subliminal and reflexes, of which there are three, or sometimes four. The suttas mostly use three, but sometimes four. And these are more like reflex wellings up of the um, sensuality and inclination towards sensuality towards becoming or being or constructing oneself self-construction and um, ignorance so these are kind of floods sometimes likened to floods orga um, and the fourth one that's occasionally referred to is, is views. When it's conceptual, gets heated up around views and opinions, particularly in terms of existence, non-existence, dhamma, speculation, and so forth. And the mind wells up and it rushes out in those directions. And these... Uh, so we kind of sit behind the defilements. Uh, so we might say particularly, you know, if you experience something like a panic state or then you notice where, you, where your mind rushes to. Or well, it's just the heart rushes to something. Mm-hmm. So I remember I was uh, walking on a raised wooden platform, meditation path, you know, when I was in New Zealand. Very nice outside raised wooden path but it had a bend in it you see so it had a slight bend in this path and I was walking along I had this flask of tea in my hand I don't know why I was carrying this flask of tea I was kind of I think I had someone I was bringing it back to the kuti I was walking along and then 
as I came round, this sun came over the top of the and shone in my eyes, and I didn't see the bend. I walked off the edge of the platform, crashed, because it was on a slope, crashed down the hill. I've just realised as we're going down, oh, going down, and then crunch, hitting ground, and then alive, still alive, and then body, and then, where's my tea flask? <laughs> How disappointing. <laughs> Instead of sending forth rays of light of loving kindness, you just bodies there, bodies there, that's fair enough. Where's my tea flask? <laughs> and then you start to think, leg, I think the leg's there, not broken, probably not, you know, and so forth. You start to piece it together. For that moment you just get that yeah. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> just shows where you're at. <laughs> uh, and so, anutsaya, they're not so evident. Um, so, these are more latencies. So, you can feel pretty comfortable and things seem to be going okay until things push your buttons and then these various floods rise up. There's another question. Someone's asking a question about consciousness. And in the Kanda Sangyuta, this is the 22nd book of the Connected Discourses, talking about the five aggregates. And the Buddha says, Suppose bhikkhus, a magician or a magician's apprentice, displays a magical illusion at a crossroads. Some with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. it. would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a magical illusion? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of consciousness there is, whether past, future, present, internal, external, gross, subtle, inferior, or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. It would appear to him to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in consciousness? Seeing thus, because the instructed noble disciple experiences revulsion towards these aggregates, you know, form, feeling, perception, sankharas and consciousness, becomes dispassionate, mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it's liberated understands destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done. So revulsion or turning away, revulsion is a very strong word, it means kind of like disenchanted, sometimes translated as disenchanted or not interested in, or turning away from. These kanda including the aggregate of consciousness. So consciousness... Why is it likened to an illusion, is the question. Because what does it do? We see things, we, what do we actually see? We see lights, we see degrees of light, essentially. And out of that, differences in the light create the experience of shape. It's all two-dimensional and we infer a lot 
three-dimensional substantial reality out of uh, basically just a screen of visual impressions. So how could that be solid? Become solid because we apply mental consciousness as, oh, that's, you know, George or something. You know, that's So the perception is a mental action that labels that, or that's a chicken or a chair. So that perception, uh, which can be deluded, but it's certainly an addition, a mental consciousness addition that's tacked onto it with memory. And we might have touched one of these things, a chair, a chicken, or George, and said, yeah, that's substantial, it's a tactile impression. And as you recognize, tactile experience is a totally different experience from visual experience, isn't it? You know, visual experience is in terms of light, tactile experience is in terms of different degrees of pressure. Pressure and light are different, totally different. But the mental consciousness tacks it all together. So it's, it's a conjuring trick. And if you focus on any particular one of these six consciousnesses, then the trick doesn't hold up. We just see there's just light which my eyes and my attention creates shape. So attention is the focus which the eyes are very good at. But if the eyes are not focused, left unfocused, then shape becomes rather difficult. We see just different tonalities of light and the sense of space disappears, the sense of perspective disappears. If you really contemplate consciousness, visual consciousness, you say that's, you know, a person who's sitting 15 feet away from me, that's what the mind will say. Actually, what visual consciousness sees is a certain coloration of light occupying 2% of my vision. The rest is what the mind makes of it. So it's this sense of the six because of the six. And you do realize tasting is different from touching, different from seeing, different from thinking, different from hearing, different from smelling. So they're totally different experiences. So where's the reality? It's through sticking them together and the mind basically referring to a perception an interpretation of that, which can be diluted. You know, you see an orange in a, in a shop, and it looks like an orange is actually made of plastic. It looks like an orange. So this is why it's called illusory. And based upon this illusion, there's the sense of, you know, well, the very formation of consciousness the sense of distance that the eyes or the mind places onto visual consciousness that's 15 feet away or that's the other side of the room or that's a mental construction, right? Because all you actually see with your eyes are light. But with a sense of distance that the mind adds to it comes a sense of that's there. When that's there, 
I'm here. <laughs> so around that consciousness is generated the position of the seer. Who, For the seer, the world is in front of them. Right? The seer has reality stands in front of them because the eyes are in the front of the head. Now for the listener, can't get the sense of distance. Is that a fly or is it a, is it a lawnmower? Is it a fly in my ear or is it a lawnmower 20 feet away? Not so easy to immediately get. You have to listen up a bit. You just hear a buzz. It doesn't do distance in the same way that the eye, the eye is very good at that. But what the ear does is it has a very strong emotional resonance to it. You're much more strongly affected by auditory phenomena. Because the auditory world surrounds you. There's no distance. That makes it a little more, you know, perilous. Because it's all around you. So there's a little bit of emotional triggering in that. For the, the listener, the world is not in front of them, it surrounds them. It gets more and more intimate as you go through the senses. As the, for the sense of smell, you're invaded by this thing. It gets up your nose. <laughs> That's pretty intimate, you know. So we get quite strong reflex about the sense of smell. It's disgusting if you all recoil because it's so in you. Like a dart, it jumps into you. It can be extremely attractive, of course. So it's very um, reflexive. And taste goes not in you, it's going to go down inside you. It's not just up your nose for a few moments, it's going to get right inside you. So taste, we get a very strong reflex of vomiting even, or feeling sick. If you don't like the taste of something, the body just wants to expel it. So where's, where's the person? Where's the taster? The taster is in a different position than the seer, right? The taster is being invaded by taste. Taste explodes inside them. And then with the body, whatever touches the body, there's no no distance at all. There's no distance at all. So the skin contact and tactile consciousness, the, the one who is touched, is extremely sensitive, and that, again, can give very rapid knee-jerk reactions. So where, where's the one who's touched? Yeah. They're being wrapped around by a world, really wrapped up in it. Then when you get to the mind, where's the person with the mind? <laughs> They're completely submerged and mashed up in it all. <laughs> In the, in the whirlpool, you can't. Very difficult to even separate because this is you are that you actually are the thinker. You are the thoughts. So where's the thinker in relationship to thought? And it's a rocky ride because sometimes the thinker's riding out on that thought. Yeah, here we go, and then thought goes through a difficult turn. And, oh no. It starts to roll over and crush the thinker. (laughs) 
and Shrinka tries to run away from the thoughts and the thoughts come chasing them. <laughs> they lay awake at night with thoughts pummeling them. <laughs> so the thinkers rather <laughs> kind of like can ride out on glorious thoughts but then also can be bashed up by unpleasant thoughts and to the point of killing themselves. <laughs> the thought. So the sense of self in all these is the, is the fetter. And the fetter, so the fetter is forged by uh, consciousness. Or, mm. Then these other qualities, feeling, perception, give it a particular tang, a poignancy. They're the mental stuff that adds to it. Mm. Gives it a really strong hit. And then sankara is the kind of volitions that come running out from that, that seem to be me and mine. Mm. The point is, you know, I think what the Buddha's pointing to is, you think, you know, dispassion towards this, you know, you're practicing in a way to just seeing is seeing, tasting is tasting, you know, it comes and goes, the data come and go, and uh, we're not hungry for it, we're not fighting with it, we just see this is just the mirage that this jitter is involved with. And needs to disengage from by restraint, since consciousness is to be restrained, don't to follow the signals of it, and then to be investigated as investigated in terms of the compulsive um, belief in the data, the hunger for it, the reactivity towards what's seen, touched, heard, and thought, you know, working all those bases. And uh, this continual refrain, you know, where does the self appear in this, this setup, in this scenario? That's, that's the main point. You know, we have consciousness, but it happens. Where does the fetter is the generating uh, a self uh, around that? Mm-hmm. By passion for sense objects or hatred for them or you know, this reactivity around these qualities and of course in this sense big one is the mind consciousness where we can get very fascinated by mental data or pressed by them or wrapped up in them or searching for the right ones so there's a lot of intoxication in terms of the thinking mind so again with that we just we think thoughts arise, but we're not going to find our, our uh, greatest benefit in that world at all, in that domain of consciousness. So something that's mentioned in the Satipatthana, a question asked about the internal external aspects of the sense fields. And I think this is where this particular internal external refrain becomes very, in my mind, becomes quite clear when the, it says, you know, one contemplates the eye internally and externally, in the fields of the eye. Uh, so I cannot see this as referring to other people's eyes. Uh, this to me means the visual consciousness, what you see, yeah, and there's this possibility 
uh, of like a, an internal quality to that, which is a sense of an inner seeing, which is likened to a primary luminosity. Which means you, you, you contemplate the sense of seeing, just the sense of being able to see, and let go of the objects that are seen. And it's like a slight retraction. Now, some of you may have heard of this, because uh, Lumpur Samedo talks about it quite a bit, the sound of silence, which is a similar uh, reference in terms of the ear. So listening, externally you hear sounds. You get your attention focuses on particular data. With the arising of attention is the arising of data. This sound, that sound, if one is becoming dispassionate towards the data, this ear consciousness brings up, and it's just the open listening, and you let go of the data, and you're interested in it, and you're not fighting with it, then there's a turning towards, it's called the sound of silence, you hear the silence, and then that's the internal aspect of the hearing consciousness. In my opinion, um, so we've been practicing mostly with the body, and uh, here I've, again, in my opinion, seen the external body as primarily, well, one way of using it in this Satipatthana practice, and it's one way of using it, and... Um, Others give other teachings on that, so you use what you feel is useful. But what I'm suggesting as one way to use this, the external being the tactile. And so if we're saying, you know, one contemplates the external tactile consciousness, that which is affected by touch. And we've been cultivating also the internal, which is the sense of embodiment, the somatic presence. So then you you can do both. You can go from that tactile to almost sensing that which is touched. Not the skin, but the the very, you might say, the nervous apperception of touch. There is that which is touched. There is a sense of internal quality to it. Um, So just being able to do this does mean that you have some way of in this world, uh, this existence, where we have these consciousnesses without shutting down consciousness altogether, but referring to the internal, we get some alleviation of uh, the fascination or the distress of the external. Because it's the data and the triggering that occurs through that data landing and the reactions that occur and the self that occurs around that. So it gives you a perspective on it and a bit of, you know, space to um, you know, find something more stable, presence. And yet it said the internal itself should also not be clung to, as this is myself. Uh, it's a reference point to enable one to uh, get a balance, this uh, sense of steadiness within a world of changing sense data. But the internal is not some final, ultimate soul or self in there. It's just the aspect of what we inherit that we can make use of. Mm. Okay. So here we have a 
person experiencing um, a lot of uh, responsiveness when experiences kindness being shown towards them, understanding that uh, the encouragement is to linger and make much of these experiences of kindness and appreciation when they arrive. How do I make much of it without the chitta-sankara, that is the emotional, uh, volitional tendencies, the emotional activations, just going to reactivity, agitation, or identification, getting too stirred up by it. Yeah, well, getting stirred up by kindness is probably, there's probably worse things to get stirred up by than that. But uh, if it turns into, you know, um, sort of romantic projection, for example, then, you know, that becomes problematic. Uh, But I suggest what the person is referring to is just the mind being stirred, heart being stirred. Well, the the use of the body to stabilize is pretty fundamental um, for the heart. So when we experience strong emotional tendencies one way or another, we feel quite strongly, maybe even very positive feelings. We feel quite strongly and emotions start to move around. Oh, I'm feeling great. Oh, this is wonderful. How I get more of it? Or and identify with being loved and so forth. Um, there's a simple thing that I would recommend is just saying, well, where are you? So the only answer to where are you is the body. The heart knows how you, how you are, but it doesn't know where you are. The mind tells you what you should be, but it doesn't know where you are either. The mind tells you what you could do about it, and how it could be different. The heart tells you how you are, And the mind tells you what you should be doing about that, and maybe even who you are, but nothing tells you where you are except your body. So this, without getting, you know, reactive to one's moods and emotions, and how, what you're feeling, just say, well, where am I? And follow that. Well, there's a certain grounding effect that occurs through that. Where am I? And if the question seems mysterious, stand up. Walk on your feet. Say it again, where am I? And you get, oh yeah. You get that upright stable presence comes in and when that stable presence is there then the energies that have been this jitter stirred up find a central axis to gravitate towards or to be held by um, that stabilizes so whether you're flooded with rage or gratitude or excitement just okay that's not a problem per se, but it's getting carried away with it could be problematic. It gives a way we can find a stability 
and say, okay, then you've got that stability where you are, and then listen to the anger. What's he trying to tell you? Because you've got a safe place to contemplate it from then. Or listen to the regret or the joy. You've got a, you've got a steady place to contemplate it from. And these emotions have certain things to tell us. Mm. Mm. And we listen in. Yeah. What do they tell us? Mm. They often tell us about uh, what we need. Mm. So anger tells us you need some strength. Yeah. Gratitude tells us you need to incorporate appreciation and joy in your life. Because uh, if it's such a such a shock, you know, it's so overwhelming, it means you, that your heart hasn't actually really integrated the experience of being appreciated. So when it happens, you say, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> and so this sense of appreciation, mudita, is something to cultivate and it makes the heart great. Mm. Someone's asking about an experience that I've mentioned of looking for open space and tendency to look for open space. The person referring to me, I'd mentioned somewhere or other, and related to that tendency to look for open space to an experience of being confined in a cradle when I was an infant. So the person's asking, how did that memory and understanding come up for you? Did it come from bodily sensation? Well, where does memory come from? You you try to remember. Where does it pop up from? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I think in this particular instance, I just noticed a strong tendency to favour space and to feel uh, confined mm. and the experience of being confined almost like a being smothered get me out of here mm. and that quality of being confined could occur uh, not just in a physical situation but primarily in a relational situation like just feeling people are getting too close or it's too much or getting overwhelmed so that Get me out of here, some space. And even if the actual qualities are quite benevolent, not disagreeable, but just feeling flooded, overwhelmed. And I remember just contemplating that, that sense of, of what's going on and, and the feeling of being choked and smothered and trapped. And so I just contemplated that. And then through this process of embodiment you get the sense of something struggling something struggling something can't get out something feels helpless and small no power no choice it's helpless it's small it's struggling it can't get out it's stuck there and I'm just listening to that and then that image popped up of when I was uh, I don't know two or three I suppose you know you know it's uh, being a little baby, or rather, you know, you keep bat, you keep irregular hours. I think my parents wanted to get some sleep or something, so they put me in a little cot 
in another room in the house. Um, they had one room and I was in a cot and this cot had bars on it so you couldn't get out. You know? So they put, so obviously they don't want the little child crawling out and hurting himself. So they, the bars on it, so they pop you in there. And it was a very cold room because it didn't have much heat in those days. It was cold, it was dark. And uh, there was no way out. And the cars would go past the house. When they passed the house, the lights would cause the shadows to move across the room. So the cars passing by, the lights would shine through the windows and the shadows would run across the room. And it was terrifying because you see these dark shapes running across the room. And, you know, you're lying there. You know, you cannot get out. And uh, there's these dark shapes running across the room and cold, trapped. And all you can do is just get under the bedclothes and hold on <laughs> until light comes. Uh, and that's what, so I guess that's what I did. And uh, um, so that became sort of established somewhere uh, in, in my being. So it's contemplating the felt sense, coming to the embodied sense of a struggle, can't move, trapped, and then burying, being smothered because I think it was the blankets. I would try and crawl under blankets to get away from these dark forces. So I think that was a sense of being really smothered by it and you can't get out. And so just lingering on that, then this memory opened up by itself. So some questions on Mano Sanchetana. Can you remind us what it is, how it manifests? Mano is, is the thinking mind or the, the mind consciousness. This is the external mind. So the external mind, by this function, I mean that which scans the sense fields and out of this amazing mirage of colours and shapes and so forth it says oh that's so it, it adds focus it detects something within the sense fields and that's how an object gets created yeah that process is called manasikara manasikara the, the activity of mano manasikara is translated as attention so Within the sense field, something scans and takes a 2% and defines, oh, that's Joseph, you know, know, does that, carves it out of the sense fields. That's called manasikara, attention. Now, manasanchetana is the kind of drive um, that (laughs) occurs both to do that and to follow it having the external mind having defined something formed something then charges for it drives towards it uh, you know, so it's emotionally gets emotionally powered so chetana comes from chitta so chitta is this potential for volition and intention and action that's one of his attributes 
So it's jitta, the internal mind, you could say, gets dragged by the external mind. <laughs> yeah. Dragged out to passion for that particular object. But that object has been created by the mind. Yeah. And it says, oh, you get one of these, you'll be fine. Get one of these, you'll be fine. And what do you get? So this occurs with all the senses. You know, this, this drive, this willful drive, likened to two strong men dragging a weak man towards a charcoal pit, <laughs> a blazing charcoal pit. Buddha was never short for powerful images, so they throw, presumably to throw this poor little jitta. The jitta is the little little man, and the mano sanchita is the two big guys, and they throw this jitta into this pit, charcoal pit, where it will burn up. So this is what the Buddha felt about it. <laughs> in this particular in this particular sutta. Ahara Sutta. So we think that's strong, but then. <laughs> so you go into the. They have sales days in January in America. Do they have these January first sales day? You know, New Year's Day sales or Black Tuesday or something, and people trampling each other <laughs> to get the bargains. Black Friday. Black Friday is it? Something like that. So, so, so people trampling each other to get bargains. There you get the man and also Jason at work. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know, but it's not just that. And then they go, you football crowd, or driven to fevers of violence and frenzy (laughs) over what? (laughs) You know, some people tossing a ball around, but that's become, you know, the attention's established it, and then it's impassioned. The chitters say, "This, you really believe in this? This is fantastic. Your team, and so forth." So it's, it revs it all up, and the attention locks onto that. And of course, Manasvinjitan also applies very much to mental objects. So people fight and kill over a mental objects, such as nature of the mass. You know, European history: people were getting slaughtered, burnt, chopped to pieces because whether there was transubstantiation of the mass or not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some point of doctrine. So that's Manasun Chaitana. And of course, we can have this around our goals. I've got to be one of these. I've really got to be a superstar or something. People have a nervous breakdown because they're trying so hard to get to be the star athlete or the star performer or a great musician or something. And then they driven, 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 driven. Uh, and this is this Manasunjitana quality. Mm. That's how it operates. So we be really careful about how one contemplates or considers right effort <laughs> and striving in Dhamma practice uh, to make sure that the little guy isn't getting thrown into some kind of blazing pit or just dragged off to an unending race that it can never win. You know, 
if we're racing in a, in a race that nobody's ever won at, there's no checkered flag. So right effort is samma, samma, so it's really, most of it's about the effort to restrain, compose, collect, release, let go, support the generation of skillful qualities, but it's none of it's this kind of, I've got to get there, drive. So be, be cautious of, of these tones and, and uh, inferences. And of course, there you, you know, it's, it's a good discussion because you know, many of these great teachers, they certainly put everything they had into their practice. And they were not hanging around. Um, but probably, you know, there was some, you know, perhaps less wise volition in what they were doing, but they found out, you know, or they worked with stuff, or you had to be fleshed out. And how that uh, that quality of, of drive and interest and urgency for practice, mm, perhaps it's more like not so much about getting somewhere so much as just beginning to release the traps and the bondage through general ongoing persistence and and I've talked about transforming the arrow of intention into an expanding circle where you keep releasing the tendency to get fascinated, gripped by anything and that does require persistent effort and, and you know vigilance to accomplish Someone, Nibbana, I think Nibbana dropped on the floor somewhere. Is Nibbana this description of a mind in which the defilements, asava, are uprooted? Or is it that which does the uprooting? It's more description of the result of uprooting. So the consummation of Dhammas is in Nibbana, that's the unbound. And the asava, in terms of bhava, is that subsumed, or the, the vibhava, um, the passion or the for non-existence or for annihilation, is that subsumed under bhavasava, under the, the asava of becoming? Yes, it is, essentially. Mm. Because both of those presume an entity who will continue or an entity that has to be destroyed. And though the Vibhava sounds pretty much like Nibbana in some respects, no, it's not about destroying an actual entity, it's about relaxing certain programs. Significance of noticing neutral sensations, I think, because if we notice the neutrality, it helps to balance our tendencies to notice or get engrossed in unpleasant or pleasant sensations, which occupy, you know, if we're talking about a body, then the unpleasant is probably 10% maybe, or it can be less, which feels really difficult. Most of it's just okay and might be 1% pleasant somewhere. <laughs> like it's warm. <laughs> but actually, 
so then if you just keep responding to the unpleasant your mind gets kind of stiff and resistant and struggling most of it's not really pleasant or unpleasant it's just okay then that's more calming steadying and more uh, authentic description of of what's going on yeah. you know, if we look at an average day a lot of it is just nothing much and occasional little high spots here and there or low spots but if we really are honest about it a lot of it's just not memorable and that keeps things cool keeps things balanced vichara which means something like evaluation or, or sensing fully sensing experience and Dhamma Vijaya, which means exploring Dhammas, they seem very similar. They both seem to explore the object, how are they different or similar. Vichara is associated with Vitaka as a twofold way in which we're able to define and articulate something, we're able to acknowledge something that is, aha, uh-huh, that's that, it's like a mental action, that's that. So this is the action of the mano, the thinking mind. That's that. That vichara, how is that? So when we come to that vichara, how is that? It begins to refer the conceived, the vitakad, that which is brought to mind, it refers it to the heart. How is that for you? How is that? How are you with that? So sensing that, how is that? So it's considered to be the way that we think, as we bring something to mind, and then, oh, what's that? How is that? Bring an idea to mind. Should I go there? Maybe. uh, Oh, that sounds better. Should I do this or should I do that? Is that one or is that one? That one, I think. You know, so that's the way... The thinking mind works. Bring something to mind, vitaka. Then you turn it around, explore it, vichara. So that's considered to be normal way of thinking mind works. Unfortunately, when we get very high speed, the vichara begins to disappear. And you just get this, that, this, that, this, that, this, that. So vichara, if you're doing high speed communications or telecommunications, uh, there's no time to explore or sense how things feel because the next thing's popping up. So high speed, we get increasingly less sensitive, more automatic, because we don't give ourselves the time or the space to explore how this is affecting us. So this is definitely a problem with high speed life, uh, where you just get programmed into a lot of very quick reactions and responses with no exploration as to how they're affecting you. Um, So then... Meditation, you begin to lessen the vitaka and increase the vichara. Just that, and how is that? That, how is that? That, long vichara. Now, Dhamma Vijaya refers more broadly to the whole process of carrying out that strategy on particular themes or particular phenomena. There's that. 
How is that? So it refers to this process of deliberate, uh, deliberate vitaka vichara. Someone says they'd appreciate some more specific instructions about the movements and placements of hands during the bowing ritual. Well, the hands are the leaders of our action. Physical action is led by the hands, or at least classically the hand is the actor, the doer. Mm -hmm. It's also the, the toucher. So it's both active, do this, handle this, fiddle with that, throw that, it's also sensitive, touch this, how does this feel? So when we use the hands, we're bringing up more the sensitivity, don't touch each other. So they touch each other in this, what they call the prayer posture, prayer position. So you bring up your action now. Your hands are telling you how you're acting. Your action now is to be sensitive, to touch, and to collect. Your hands are touching each other lightly together. And the heel of the hand rests on the heart, or the heart center. So the sense of that is you're now connecting your heart to the hands in a receptive, sensitive way. So that's where we begin. And then when you make an offering, generally you use both hands to make the offering. So it's very full. It's not just, oh, here you go. <laughs> So everything in you is focused in that particular way. So if it's a very small object, you can use one hand, the other hand holds the hand. So both hands are united in that offering. So you're really united in that offering. Both hands. So you're offering incense or offering to someone, both hands. That's the correct way to offer because then everything in you is coming together in that way. And then when we cultivate this puja, respect, then your hands start at the heart uh, and then the hands move up to the head and the fingertips, if you're bowing to a Buddha, the fingertips generally touch the forehead. So you lower your forehead because that's considered the highest place where the third eye, so you touch, tips of your fingers touch the forehead. That's for a Buddha. And then you come down, bow your head and move over. Coming down, you place your hands lightly on the floor and your head rests between the two hands. So the sense of the hands are now conveying the gesture of relinquishing, you know, touching the ground, relinquishing, letting go. And so then when you come up, you come up again to your forehead. The fingertips touch the forehead. And there are cultures, I don't know every culture in Asia, but the Thai culture, is, is, these gestures of respect are very important and very central to the way the society operates. So you often see people are making angelie, this gesture to each other. And then um, generally to other people, you, don't, you just place your hands to your chest and then you maybe bow your head. Um, but to a Buddha, you place your fingertips right to your forehead. 
so it's a bit higher. Mm. That's how you do that ritual. And if you carry it out carefully, because the point of ritual is not a function, it is a, it's a piece of poetry, it's an image, it's an artistic thing, so it's not a get it over with, bam, bams. You know, it's, a, it's a, supposed to be a, a piece of poetic body language that's conveying complete commitment, sensitivity, respect to the venerated object. Buddha mm. and human beings you generally the hands don't go so high come up to your face but not to the forehead done it all done I think. Hey, well.